Christmas is almost here. The day is almost here, but the season's here already. Amen. And I, uh, everybody's getting ready. Everything's getting ready. And they started a long time back in Christmas uh, songs and the radio and everything else. And uh, I determined that I won't listen to any Christmas music till the 1st of November, uh, December. So that was yesterday. I didn't want to start too early. And I determined I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And of course, on the radio, they started playing it already. And so I'm like, no. But it was kind of, it kind of, I just started, I turned it on yesterday, finally. I just turned it on and I have the Alexa thing and it was just playing and it was good. I mean, it's all, it's great. The trees are coming up everywhere and, you know, the lights and all the year-end sales and everything else, you know. People are excited and it's pretty cool. But what struck me, and this is nothing new, but what struck me is how much or how we celebrate everything about Christmas but miss out on Jesus. It really hit me a little extra this time around. I, and I made a deliberate effort. Because I was listening to the Alexa app. I was getting work done around the house. And I was listening to Alexa in uh, the radio station. And for one whole hour, there was a lot of songs about Christmas. But not once. In one whole hour, there's not one mention of Jesus. One whole hour. And I was just. I never did that before, but then I was, like I said, I made this deliberate attempt, and they sang about everything. You know, Santa, the tree, the reindeer, snow, I'll be home for Christmas, you know, family, chestnuts roasting, all, everything else. One whole hour, and there was not one mention of Jesus, and I know it's cliche, you know, they talk about snow also, and it's kind of funny because when I landed from India, in India it was 80, 80 something. And so all I had on was a t-shirt. And landed in Chicago and it was 20 and it was snowing and I didn't have a jacket. And I was, <laughs> I was looking and I was like, I was probably the only person in the whole of Chicago without a jacket. But I didn't have to go outside the airport. I just had to hop on a train to the next. So I was like two seconds out, outdoors. But I was just laughing at myself. You know, the snow and everything else. But anyway, I know it's cliche. But we use the saying all the time that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. And I want us to make really, it hits me more because every year it feels like people go further and further away from that reason. Like it or not, the way, I mean, it, it's, Christmas has become so extravagant, so extra. Really, there's so much more and it's fun and everything else. But you also realize that they're going further and further away from the whole reason. And I want us as a church and as people and as families to make the extra effort to remind people that Jesus is the reason for the season. Really, that's a challenge because like I said, they're going far away and we need to be even louder in our proclamation. That Jesus is the reason for the season. And I remember reading a few years back a comment someone made. And this was in one of the main newspapers. I remember that. Talking about it. Christmas is such an amazing time of the year. And these Christians ruin it with all the Jesus fanaticism. I remember reading that clearly in one of the newspapers or in the magazine. And I was like shaking my head. So I want to encourage you and challenge you. Please be louder. Make a greater effort to remind people why we celebrate Christmas. And this morning, I know we lit the first candle. And again, I don't want to make anything a mindless tradition. If it doesn't mean something, if it doesn't get us to think and reflect and turn us and make us more like Christ. I just don't want us to do something just for the sake of doing something. 
And this morning we reflected and we lit the candle of hope. And that's what I want to challenge us to take that light of hope to the world that desperately is looking for something to hope in. And let's remind ourselves to do that. Hope. As I look into God's word, I want to once again look at the lives of Mary and Joseph. Look at the hope that they had. How God intervenes. You know, they had hope for something, but God intervenes and changes things up a little. And I've titled my sermon, The Hope of Mary and Joseph. Because it essentially is about two people who simply hoped for a normal life. They only hoped for a normal life, but encountered God. And after, they, after that encounter, they were willing to give up everything that they hoped for because now they put their hope in someone else. In someone else. Turn with me once again. Again, this is a familiar story. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, verses 26 And this is Mary's story and Mary's encounter, chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. And I don't have really an outline. I'm just talking through the story as we have it in in the Word of God. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26 onwards. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. A town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found him favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Again, a very familiar story. And uh, we always talk about it around Christmas. And so let's look at it again this morning uh, from Mary's point of view. The truth is, as we look around us, the one thing we notice is that we all are created unique, correct? We all are created unique, but with that uniqueness comes differences, right? And sometimes, and this is something we can't help because this is basic human nature, that we tend to treat people who are different from us differently. Even in the church, we do that, you know? If people don't behave like 
or act like the way we expect them to act, we look at them differently. And as I was writing this down, I remember, uh, I remember as a kid, we used to go to a mainline church for a long, I mean, as a kid, we used to go to a mainline church and everybody sang only hymns. You'd have those numbers, you know, you had these, I don't know if you remember in the churches, they used to have this, what do you call it, signboard, whatever, with all the hymn numbers printed right there. I remember that clearly. It's on these huge pillars and you had all these letters, I mean, all these numbers there and you know which hymn was going to go and I didn't understand what was happening, but one thing I always did is put my fingers into every hymn. As soon as I reached my last finger, I knew it was time to go home, you know? <laughs> I remember that clearly as a kid. You know, you're just getting ready because they sang only hymns and everybody dressed their Sunday best and everybody stood there very stoically, you know? No expressions, barely any expressions. I dare not even say anything in church because I would get a backhand or something. You know what I'm talking about. Then later on, we started going to a Pentecostal church and things are very different. And I remember, I clearly remember some of my friends from the old church because they were being really thought that we were being really disrespectful suddenly because we raised our hands in worship and we had a drum set and an electric guitar in church. And they thought, you know, we were just disrespectful, you know, because respectful to God uh, because we were using an electric guitar and drums. And on the other hand, when I came over to the other side, I remember very clearly how we described them now. Now that we were Pentecostal, how we described them. That church is dull. Church has no life. They are dead. Just because they sang only hymns and all they had was a piano and a cello once in a while. You know, memory serves me, right? And so we use these words. And I'll be honest, I was, I was quite condescending looking down on them. But thank God I grew up and read the word and matured a little And I understood what worship really meant. Because here's the truth. When we raise our hands, or whether we don't raise our hands, whether we jump around and wave flags, and although we bow our heads and just remain quiet the whole time, whether we use an electric guitar and drums, or we just use an organ and a a cello, it really doesn't matter. Because those are expressions of worship. Those are just expressions of worship. And different people express worship differently. We express worship Based on our personality, based on our style, based on our preference. Okay, and so as a church, I pray that we never are quick to judge someone's worship based on their expression of worship. Because we sing that song at the end of it all, when the music and everything has gone away, we come back to the heart of worship. What is at the heart of worship? What do we say? Coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. That's what worship is. It's just between us and God. doesn't matter how they express it. I love the fact that Isaac and them, they do the flags at the back sometimes. And they, they weren't trying to be disrespectful. They didn't want to be a distraction. So they said they're going to do it at the back. But that's their expression of worship. Now, just because we don't do flags in front doesn't mean one is better than the other. That's worship. I, sorry, I don't know. That was a side note. But the point is we got to realize do not look at each other differently because we are all different. We are all really different and fight the urge when people don't match our lifestyle to judge people quickly either. And we need to do that because that's exactly what happens in the story. What happens to the people and we jump to conclusions like many of the people around Mary and Joseph probably jump to conclusions. 
Because that's the weirdest story these two kids came up with. And the Lord, like I said, he challenged me personally. And I remember him challenging me. Hey, you're going to be a pastor. You're going to be a minister. You're going to meet different kind of people. Don't be quick to judge. You know, and so we got to be remember Mary and Joseph and their story. Two young kids who I thought were good Jewish kids. Because they were at the synagogue every time, you know. They were there all the time. And now she's having a baby. They aren't even married. And we don't know who's, he's not the dad. I mean, they won't even admit that they made a mistake. And I think more people would have been mad at them for their lack of remorse. They won't even admit what they did was wrong. And I can easily think people, how, how mad people were there at them. And I asked myself the question, would I be that mad? And every single time I ask, I mean, every Christmas I think about it. How would I react to a story like this? Like I said, the lack of remorse gets me sometimes because I want them to feel bad and feel terrible about what they did. And then I'm like, okay, now I'll forgive you or something, whatever. It's not up to us, though. But this morning, I want us again to hear Mary's voice, hear her side of the story. And I'm always moved. And I've been to several Christmas plays, and you all have, and there's... There's sometimes there's a solo by Mary and, you know, or she comes and this, she does, performs, dramatize her version of things, you know. And I'm always moved because it challenges me whether I would be able to do what she did. I mean, not have a baby, but that would be really weird. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Someone who would be willing to go out on that limb because of what God had said. To some people, Christmas is all about the baby in the manger, the star, the wise men, the shepherds. People spending a lot of money buying things that they probably don't need. But for Mary and Joseph, Christmas actually started when the angel Gabriel came to them. When Gabriel came and visited her, like we saw probably nine months before Jesus was actually born. Here you have Mary probably easily between 14, 15 or around 14, 15 or 16 years old. Lived with the parents, lived in a small town, Nazareth, you know, this sweet, devout little Jewish girl. And then it comes Joseph and her parents probably notice, you know, Joseph hanging around, doing a little extra walk around the house, you know, trying to do a little extra to be noticed. That's it. And of course, they know Joseph and they say, hey, he's a fine young man, not very rich, but a hardworking kid, you know, a decent guy. And every time I come to this part, I smile because I realize Americans don't get this part. They really don't get this part of arranged marriages, do they? It's, it's, it's kind of really funny to me because in India, that's what you do. You know, and back in that day, they did the same thing. And it's, it's kind of funny because on my trip back home, I had one of my friends who's a little older than me. She has a 23-year-old daughter and she talks to me, Pastor, if you find a suitable boy, just let us know. Now that... The pastor's in the middle of it all. If you want to make an arrange, you got to go to the pastor first, and then the pastor talks to the boy's father or the, mo- or the girl's father. That's how it works. And so the pastor has a lot of responsibility there, you know, the matchmaker kind of thing. But I'm being honest. They, one of my friends told me, hey, if you see a suitable boy, please let us know. And so I'm looking. Uh, <laughs> he's got to be Indian, though. <laughs> That's the condition. So. No, I'm just... Uh, but it's just, you know, that part of it just... 
Joseph's parents, so what Joseph's parents would do is they would go to the rabbi or whoever's in charge. I know they say matchmaker, but not really, not like a fiddler on the roof. Yeah, that matchmaker in the middle, that's the image I always have. But not that kind of person, but the rabbi played the role of the matchmaker, basically. And so they'd go to the rabbi, and then the rabbi would approach Mary's parents. And Mary's parents, if they were okay with it, then they would meet together. Okay, so you have Joseph's parents, Mary's parents. The kids aren't even involved right now. And they didn't even have a photograph to show them who it was. But, and then the rabbi, they all sit together and they do, you know, they figure it out. Hey, everything works good. They shake hands, basically. You know, and then what happens? The next time they visit, Joseph is brought forward. Mary's brought together. And of course, there are a lot of elders. They're not left alone. There's chaperones and everybody else is in there. And few witnesses. And then they reach that agreement the whole they exchange gifts too and then they were legally engaged actually to an extent that they, I mean it says pledged to one another they were basically married though they didn't have any physical contact and that's how serious it was and that's why I always laugh about the romantic I don't know where and I always ask the question haven't got a proper answer where did the coming down getting down on one knee and asking the girl for her hand in marriage come from I don't know. The only one explanation I got was, you know, in the olden days, the knights or these people would come down, these subjects would come down and kneel before the king asking, I mean, as a pledge of allegiance to the king. So that's the reason. But I don't know. They, that kneeling down was to the king to say, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Now, when guys get down on the knee, they're not going to say, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. So I don't know. It's totally accurate there. <laughs> you end up doing it. That's true sometimes. But the understanding here is this, that they're already basically married. And again, in India, we exchange rings. Even at an engagement ceremony, we exchange rings. So during an engagement ceremony, during the time of engagement, guys wear rings too. Very often, it's just a ring with the initial of the girl. That's 99.9% of the time. It's just with the initial of the girl on there. Now the new thing is they do the Hebrew thing with I'm my beloved's and my beloved's is mine from Song of Solomon basically. So they use those rings now in Hebrew. So they don't know what they're wearing, but uh, it's just one of those things. And so here you have Mary, let me get on. Here you have Mary and Joseph basically m- married together because if Joseph died, she'd be considered his widow and everything he had would go to her. Okay, even though they weren't married as such. And so here you have this guy. What does he do in the meantime? He goes, while she's getting ready, he goes to his house. He's getting ready to get his bride. So he gets his room ready or a house ready. And very often it's within that same family, joint families we call it there. You know, So it's within his father's household. He prepares a place for his bride. And he's doing that. And of course, he's building this whatever dream that he has for Mary and him. And transforming it into a house for uh, like someone to come and live in, basically, right? And Mary, on the other hand, she's saying goodbye to everybody, collecting all her favorite things that she can make because the youngest daughter-in-law is the one in charge of the kitchen, if you didn't know that. That's the rule. That's still in India, too. But it's kind of funny because I told Heather, she's the youngest daughter-in-law, and she had to make coffee, uh, made tea for everybody in the morning and give it to them, and she bought that. We don't do that in my family, but she asked me, how does your dad take the tea? I was like, well, you know, and I... I just, she bought it too. We don't do that in my family. But most families, the youngest daughter-in-law, this is how the rule works. The youngest daughter-in-law, the newest one, the newest bride inside is in charge of the kitchen. 
Okay? And so that's what Mary's trying to get, get all, uh, that's what she's doing. You have Joseph getting ready, you have Mary getting ready, but in the middle of all this, this angel shows up. And everything does not, I mean, nothing stays the same after this. Because this sweet little baby and everything else that they, we talk about at Christmas, we don't realize how much happened before that. The sweet little baby, and we know this already. This picture, because nowadays it's all about this calm, snowflakes and fire, hot chocolate, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But we know that this baby was not born just to live this life in peace and everything else. He was born for one purpose, to die a violent death. A violent death. You know, this cute, cuddly baby would suffer excruciating pain. Loneliness. When he needed people the most, they deserted him. And so you have Mary and Joseph here trying to do their own thing when, Mary, when Gabriel shows up. And Gabriel says, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary's troubled by this. She's troubled by what he's trying to say. And I say this, I've probably said this here and I've said this all the time. When I was younger, I prayed that I would see angels. I wanted to see and encounter an angel. But again, as I read the word of God, more often than not, when an angel showed up, one, you freaked out first. And what he had to say wasn't really nice. I mean, you think about it. Joshua, the angel shows up and Joshua's like, okay, are you for me or against me? Right there. Gideon shows, I mean, Gideon's doing his own thing. The angel shows up. Gideon freaks out and tries to hide. And then the angel says, don't worry. The shepherd's in there and the angels show up. What happens? The shepherds are terrified. All the time. He shows up to Mary and he's terrified. So I don't know if I really want to see an angel here. Here, I'll wait for heaven to see them. But... People, that was a natural reaction and she was scared too and didn't understand about what was happening. Angels aren't worried about personal space because they get into your business. They're not going to sit there at the side and, you know, and, you know, do their own thing. No, they're going to be in your face, tell you this is what God wants you to do. And when you encounter something like that, your life is going to be changed forever. And that's what happens to Mary's life because all she had hoped for was a normal life. All she had hoped for was a normal life, an ideal wife, a great mother, you know, just me, Joseph, and the kids. And that's, that's all I hoped for. All these little perfect dreams kind of come to a screeching halt when Gabriel shows up. And the conversation probably lasted only a few minutes, but those few minutes turned her life upside down. All the things, like I said earlier, all the things that she hoped for changed and she put her hope in God. Her hope in God. Her hope was in His promise. What the words He had spoken, her hope was in that. Her hope was in the baby that was growing inside of her. Her hope was in the child that she was going to raise. And I can only imagine that as soon as the angel left, the questions start pouring in. The question starts pouring in. What will Joseph say? What will my parents say? What will the family say? What will the neighborhood say? And I can, you know, I can totally see her bewilderment, if you want to call it that. Totally lost right there. Because here she's legally basically married. If they caught her, she could be stoned to death. That's the honest punishment for adultery as such. Try explaining that to people. Mary 
is stuck in this situation, but she never quit because her hope was in God. Her hope was in God. She was from Nazareth. Now Nazareth again, most of us know Nazareth was a small town. I mean, Jesus' disciples himself asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nobody ever thought anything good about Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town, but again, we know that history tells us there was a big Roman army garrison close by. And where did they go when they had extra money and extra time? They go to Nazareth. Cheap wine, cheap food, and there were plenty of women there who were willing to make an extra buck. So you have that background there and now try and explain. Mary's trying to explain something that God was doing. There was nothing she could do to stop people from talking. Except hope in God. Except hope in God. Who's going to believe her? What will Joseph, will Joseph reject her? And so what she does next is kind of interesting. She goes to Elizabeth and you can think about it. Why does she go to Elizabeth? Simple reason. You do this, I mean, I've seen this happen before. They want to hide the pregnancy. Why to hide the shame? What do they do? Pack the girl off to a different place. That's exactly what they're doing. Send her away to a place where nobody knows her. And so that's what happens to, uh, to, I mean, to Mary. She goes to Elizabeth, who's, of course, pregnant with John the Baptist. Then, now we'll get back to Mary, but then look at Joseph. What's Joseph doing? Again, he's been busy trying to get ready. He's, he's a carpenter, so he's putting in extra hours, trying to make a little extra money and everything else. And then, of course, he hears the rumors that are starting to come through, right? He hears the rumors, and then, of course, his worst fear is confirmed. His sweet little Mary, she's pregnant. It's not his baby, so what does he do? I mean, who's the dad? He doesn't even ask. He doesn't know who it is. So he just totally, totally, I mean, I can picture him just telling Mary. Mary's trying to explain about what God said to her, and he's just going, come on, Mary. You know, and it's pretty evident if you read the story that the Bible doesn't say it directly, but Joseph didn't really believe her because of what he was going to do. He didn't really believe her story about the angel and the Messiah and everything else. It didn't make any sense to him. And so what was he doing? All he hoped for, he had three options basically. You either marry her quickly, you know, even though the baby's not there, or publicly divorce her, which would mean her death. And the third option was what? Have the marriage annulled basically quietly and then just go about their own lives. And that's the option he chooses. You know, he makes up his mind that he's just going to divorce her quietly and let her be. And the Bible says that, that Joseph was a righteous man actually for doing that. And anyway, he makes up his mind, and as he makes up his mind, he falls asleep. But then God comes to him now. Matthew, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18. And it says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Okay, now this is Joseph's part. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, this is after he made up his mind to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The purpose of Jesus' birth is given right there. That he will save his people from their sins. 
Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will, will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which simply means God with us. And verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. And so you see what happens right there. Joseph's made up his mind to do this thing quietly because he was a righteous man. But then the angel comes and tells him, hey, don't do this because what is happening is from God. Is from God. Now think about these two stories. Mary and you have Joseph. Again, we know this. But think about what their lives are going through right now. They are planning to begin their lives together. But it's not the beginning that they were hoping for. It was not the beginning that they were hoping for. Because they had become and they knew they would become the talk of the town. People would make fun of them. People would mock them. And we know how the self-righteous people can get, you know, when something bad happens to someone else. Quick to find out some fault. Maybe they should have read the Torah a little more. Maybe they should have gone to the synagogue a little more. Maybe they should have prayed a little more. Maybe their parents didn't discipline them enough. You know, there's people, they always become, there's never a shortage of Job's friends, like I say. There's never a shortage of Job's friends who want to comfort, but they always point out something that you probably did so that you're, you're facing this right now. And they pretend to know the mind of God. There's never a shortage of those people. And I seriously hope we aren't people like that, really. Because we can't figure out what God is really doing. Anyway, Mary's here. She's pregnant. The baby's not Joseph's. And everybody's mumbling. I'm sure he lost friends. I'm sure he lost family because they don't want to associate with them. I'm sure he lost business. He, he's make, he has to support his family, right? I'm sure he lost business, struggling to make ends meet. Okay, no more honeymoon. No more, you know, everything else. But the Bible says Mary was, Joseph was righteous and Mary was favored by God. God had a special plan for their lives. Mary and Joseph were righteous people. They were good people. And in the midst of this trial, they did not quit, did not give up on God because their hope was in God and in His promise. That's the hope they had. That's the whole point of the hope was to trust in God and what God is saying. And when he says it, it will come to pass. That's hope. That is really hope. And I'm sure they never prayed for a lot of money. They didn't do those kind of people because they were righteous people as such. All they really could have said is, God, leave us alone, pick on someone else. I don't know how many times we do that. God, go pick on someone else. I'm already struggling. Why are you just hitting me with more? But the whole point of every trial is so that we will hope in Him. Hope in Him. Hope is not just hoping everything will be okay. Hoping that everything works out. Hope is the confidence. It's the faith. It's the trust. It's the kind of hope that they know that they know that God said this and it will happen according to His word. That's what Mary says and we see it clearly in her response. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Another version we know commonly says, Be it unto me according to your word. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. It wasn't, okay, God, do whatever you want to do. It was, God, you said it. Now, let's, come on, let's go get it done. 
Come on, God, let's do it. Because my hope is in you and you alone. God will make it happen. It's like that amen at the end of a prayer. What does amen really mean? So be it. That's what she's saying. Okay, God, you said it. Now I put my hope in you. Now let's get this done. What do we do when life throws those unexpected, you know, things across our life, basically? Across our path where our hopes, our dreams, everything else seem to come crashing down. Do we still hope for things or do we hope in the person who turned the worst situation around and make it right? Do we hope in him? Do we hope in what he says? Because the easiest thing is to freak out and criticize God, criticize people and blame everybody in your life. But that's not what they did. They chose to hope in God, their Savior. You should read the song later and that Elizabeth and everybody else. In God, my Savior. That's their hope right there. The angel did not make a mistake. God never makes a mistake. He chooses for some of us to go through trials. I mean, we all go through trials. But he chooses some of us to go through these trials so that our hope will not be put on things around, but our hope will be put in him. That's the whole point. And that's why I don't think Mary ever understood. We know she was like puzzled by the guy's greeting, right? And we sing that song, Mary, did you know? You know, I love one of those songs. Mary, did you know that your baby would what, one day walk on water? And I was listening to it. Would one day walk on water. Mary, did you know that your baby would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you have delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? That your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss that little baby, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? That baby boy would one day rule the nations. Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. I love that song. Did she really know what was happening? No, she didn't. But she chose to hope in God. When everything else fails, we've got to learn to hope in God. Hope in God. In spite of everything that happened, Mary chose, and Joseph too, chose to choose, chose to hope in God, His word and His promise, no matter what the cost was going to be. That was it. That was it. Nine months and probably more than that. Hoping in God, having confidence that God said it and it's going to happen. That's the hope she had. She didn't know that putting a hope in God meant traveling on a donkey to Bethlehem while she was nine months pregnant. She didn't know that putting a hope in God meant giving birth to the king of all creation in a stable because there was no room in an inn. She didn't know that having and putting hope in God meant running for their lives because crazy King Herod was trying to kill all the babies. She didn't know that putting a hope in God meant coming back to bear all the mockery and everything else because everybody knew the story. She didn't know putting a hope in God meant watching her firstborn son being beaten, tortured, whipped, dragging across across the streets. 
she didn't know that putting her hope in god meant seeing her son die the death of a criminal hanging on a cross abandoned by almost everybody he knew and god himself turned his face away i'm sure she didn't know putting her hope in god meant all this pain all this suffering but in spite of it she still held on to hope hope in god hope in god she did not give up and we know this cuz her hope was rewarded her hope was rewarded it all made sense and i always always think about it the joy on mary's face when someone came screaming in he's alive all that she had hoped for was destroyed but the person she had hoped in did not let her down on the third day he rose from the dead and now she knew he lived her savior was alive everything she had hoped in was true god is faithful church he is faithful he is true that's why we put our hope in him Amen. his word is true that's why we hope in his word his promises are true that's why we put our hope in his promises put our hope in him our hope needs to be in christ in christ love that verse and barbara pointed out to several verses but the one in isaiah it says they that hope in the lord will not be disappointed amen that's isaiah 49:23 you can write that down isaiah 49:23 they that hope in me will not be disappointed her why turned into just praising god because her hope was in god not just mary joseph did the same thing how do you know he did it the bible simply says he got up and did what god told him to do because his hope was in god and god's promise right there he just did he obeyed and his obedience was evidence of his hope in god all he was guaranteed was shame but his hope was in god church christmas is way more and i always use this cliche the hallmark postcard you know those greeting cards or hallmark movies this picture perfect things you know you have this mantle with this what do you call those socks what do you call them stockings thank you you know that perfect little thing there it's never about that it's about hope that comes in and only in the person of jesus christ Amen. we lit a candle that signified hope i pray that our hope will be in christ we sing that song our hope is found in nothing else but what jesus christ his righteousness our hope is built on christ trust god to fulfill his purpose in your life it's not hoping that everything will work out is the confidence knowing my hope is going to be rewarded my hope is going to be rewarded make god your hope make god your hope god 
I trust in you. God, my hope is in you. God, I give it all to you. Here's the truth. When you go through the hard times, hope gives you the strength to make it through. If you didn't have hope, you would despair and just wither away. Hope gives us the strength. It's not hope for things. It's the hope in Christ. Hope in God. Trusting God. He knows what's best for me. All I got to do is be like Mary. Be like Joseph. Be it unto me according to your word. And then Joseph just obeyed. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Can we really say that with all honesty this morning? I dare not trust, what does it say? The sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Bow your heads with me. It's pretty simple. Familiar story. Mary and Joseph. But I want to focus this morning and I focus this morning on hope. It's not wrong to hope for a good future. It's not wrong to hope for a good family. It's not wrong to hope for things. Please don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong in hoping for things like that. But our hope in Christ comes first and foremost. Our hope is our confidence in Christ that when everything, when the bottom falls out, I can still hold on to hope because my hope is built on Christ and Christ alone. That he is promised and I know what his promise says and I will hold on to the promise no matter how hard that storm is. I will hold on to the promise that I have. My hope is built on Christ and nothing else. My confidence comes from knowing God. That he loves me. My confidence and my hope comes from his word. Where his promises are yes and amen. Take that news to the world, church. That there is hope. There is hope not like what the world has to offer during the season. Hope is not found in the stuff we are going to buy and the things we are going to celebrate and all the food. Hope is found in the form of Jesus Christ. Who was born to save the world. That's the real hope. That's the real hope. Reflect with me at this time. Can you really say my hope is in you God. I surrender everything else. All my dreams, all my ambitions, all the other things I hope for. And I bring it in submission to you, God. My hope is in you and you alone. So I'll stand to our feet as we sing this song.